Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to Creep Time, the podcast with Silas Dean, Stu, and we have somebody else here. Who is we that? Do. Who is that? I, Drum roll. I, I have no idea. <laughs> hey, Could everybody. It be? It's Scott Alexander Redmond. Ooh, the full legal name. I, I was gonna. I'm gonna. Can I give your address <laughs> so too? Can I dox you? <laughs> Please, somebody just steal my identity already. It's about time. Yes. Well, this is now a treat because now we have three little tour biddies on here who have done tours around this country. Scott's just coming off of the Oklahoma tour. Oklahoma. Okay. Stu, oh do you know anything gosh. about the show? Of course. I. Well, I think you were telling me a couple months ago. Um, that Scott was doing it, and I was just like so excited. I wish I could have. I really wanted to see it when I was on Broadway. So I guess is wild. it the same tour, Scott? I mean, the it same was, show. Yeah, mm-hmm. the same. Like taking the regular version of Oklahoma and just kind of flipping it on its head, and it's like showing the like using it to show the grittiness of America now and everything. And grit yeah. there was grit yeah. there oh. was. <laughs> I saw this twice we were, too. Um, once where Scott went on, uh, which was amazing. Um, this show was Wait, wild. Who did you go on for? Who did you cover, Scott? I I covered pretty much everyone. Um, I did uh, like Curly, Will, Allie Hackham, and then uh, two other guys, Mike and Cord. Um, so really, everyone except for Judd and Karin Sadoani's dad. Wow. Which you could have done. Yeah. Which, you know, listen, if doing chambers too taught me anything, it's that a few like dark lines around the face can really age you up. Like one, one bad gray mustache can really give you. (laughs) Oh my God. PTSD (laughs) triggered heart. I'm literally triggered by this mic. It looks like your mustache in the show. Does it? Yeah. Oh no. That's exactly what I was going for when I bought it. I was like, 100%. I I want it to be reminiscent of our past and our future, you know? But I'm upset I was not a student in the middle of America able to come see you guys on your tour. You know what? I think anyone could have come. Your family came, Stu. Yeah, my like (laughs) 90-year-old grandmother came to the show. She was like, this is the most fabulous production I've ever seen. Oh, <laughs> Meanwhile, someone's yeah. nose fell off in the middle of it. Uh, mustache came off. Oh, I'm it's like fully pulling some choices. I'm pulling somebody's eye out of their skull. Like scream. Like I'm, I gave full performance in every middle school performance. I gave like, <laughs> this is it. <laughs> this, this is my this is my life. I like to think you would have done that anyway. You're doing like schoolhouse rock, and you're pulling someone's eye out of their skull. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but Scott did cover literally every role under the sun in that show. I'm curious what your favorite was. My favorite one to do was Will. Um, yeah, things like Kansas City and all that. Because um, I when I get to just like run around the stage, jumping off of tables and everything. Um, like, get to be, like, a little bit of the like, comic relief. And then, uh, like, Curly, like, doing Curly was fun, but was just terrifying because it's it just, like, role. you don't shut yeah. up for the first half it's hour of the show role. when, like, you're, like, playing guitar in the pitch black in with dark, a, a camera two inches from your face and, like, it was like so that that I was myself every time I did curly, but Will was a lot of fun. <laughs> so cur- curly, you had to actually play guitar. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah, there were. Wow. S- five or six songs that had um, 
uh, Carly playing guitar in them, um, and just like all all throughout the show. I don't know if you heard that in the background. The cat just like lost its mind. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, okay. Like, if there's someone in your room. I was literally imagining. And thus like, the creep time begins. Ooh, you sound I was so imagining, intimate like, like that. the exorcist. <laughs> like walking backwards down the stairs. Yes, that's yeah. what it sounded like. This cat, I swear to God, I call it the, like the evening schizophrenia. This cat experiences where it just freaks and just runs around the room, sees things, like snaps at things, but. Yeah, Dexter's going through it right now. But, okay, I'm going to shift into Miss Debbie Collier. Um, mm. So here to tee this up, Scott, you're coming in blind. Stu and I both have research on this. So the you line. don't know a thing about her. Uh, not, not a thing. I know her first name's Debbie and her last name's Collier. Well, I should also say, so I did call Scott just before this because I was like, just so you're aware, I was like, as of last night, there was breaking news that the medical examiner thinks this was a suicide. And I was like, just to reframe like what you're getting into and like how we're presenting the case. But Stu, you've actually gone a step further. You've listened to the podcast with the daughter, right? Listen to the whole thing. Was Oh my I will go into it. <laughs> I when you texted me that they ruled it a suicide, I literally like Insane. fell to the ground. Insane. I was like how after listening to the podcast literally i finished it because it's almost two hours long um as of like last night i finished it i think it was like about two hours at least like an hour and 45 uh scott if you don't know what was going on basically after all of this case you know goes down and debbie's body is found her daughter goes on the i told you it's like a little like podcast press junket where she's trying to clear her name or like clear up the facts on what happened to her mother but she yeah to sit down for a podcast and so recent, so recently after her mother was found. It's just, it seemed very sinister, but I'm going to get into the full backstory, but I'm going to tee you up with a top line. All right, just to fill you in a bit. So this all took place on September 11th. So this is just about a day after Debbie is reported as a missing person. So this is 59-year-old Debbie Collier. Her car is discovered parked and abandoned off Route 15 in a rural part of Georgia. Now, this prompted a deeper investigation into the woods that were just off the road of that highway where police would find Debbie's body. So, like I said, just a few hundred yards off that road, they find her. She's kind of down an embankment um, in what they believed at the time looked like a homicide because she was found burned and partially nude. Oh, my God. Sounds like a homicide to me. Oh, my God. So, in fact, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll present this even in um, the top line Police publicly state at the time that her death looked deliberate and personal, alluding to it being a homicide. Uh, What was odd about this story, outside of the body being found, was that prior to being found, Debbie Collier was seen on security camera pulling into a Dollar General uh, where she went to buy, like, several strange items. She got a tarp, she got a poncho, a torch lighter, paper towels, and she got a reusable tote bag. So the entire purchase, it's all caught on camera. She's seen alone in this Dollar General. And then she leaves that Dollar General, goes to her rental car in the parking lot, where she then sends a Venmo payment to her daughter for exactly $2,385 and a message that read, they are not going to let me go. Love you. There is a key to the house in the blue flower pot by the door. It sounds to me like someone was involved, or that's what everyone assumed. So then in another shocking twist in this case, like I was saying, as of last night, 
we get the report out of the Georgia medical examiner who was on the case who comes out saying they believe her death was the result of inhalation of superheated gases, thermal injuries, aka burns, and then hydrocodone intoxication, which is an opioid, which to them has suggested that this was a suicide. This was of her own doing. But there are there are some questions in this case. I mean, there's a lot of this that completely conflicts what police have said up until this point, and the question remains, in either scenario, what really happened to Debbie Collier? Yeah. Uh, Initial thoughts. <laughs> I'm, I'm so freaked. Wait, so she... What, why did she just Venmo, Venmo her daughter out of we have nowhere? No and what idea. is this very specific amount? Well, we'll get into it in a little bit. And Stu, you probably read about this a lot because there are two versions of like what that Venmo could have been about. Um, the the most commonly talked about is that the Venmo seemed to be very close to parole fines and parole fees that I think her daughter's boyfriend had at the time, mm-hmm. which suggested that this. See, everyone's looking to the daughter and the boyfriend at first. Um, but I think it also ties into some... He was going through drug treatments at the time. He might still be. And it also tied into some pending payments or outstanding balances at a drug treatment center. So in both scenarios, I think it's somewhat tied to that. But we're not 100% certain. I don't know, Stu, did you read anything else outside of that? I read both of those. And then some people were suggesting that she um, was just getting rid of her Venmo balance entirely. Like, that was the remaining balance, and she was just getting rid of it. And it was just coincidental. It just happened to, like, mm-hmm. fit those two things. I mean, people do yeah. look to, like, force-fit puzzle pieces in cases like this. Yeah. Well, I mean, and when all signs were pointing, which I know we'll get into, the mm-hmm. daughter, it made perfect sense. Um, like, what a what a tee-up to, you know, putting her in the position of probably being suspect number one if the amount was so close to the amount that was owed. Um, on her boyfriend's treatment and his parole were both in that same amount. Yeah. I I also have a lot of questions and I know I'm getting ahead of myself because we'll talk about it as we go through the timeline, but I have so many questions around the word they, they're not going to let me go. Who's they? I have ideas. (laughs) I was like, I can see whales spinning. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to let you get into Okay. I'm sure you have it like ready to go about kind of what went down, I guess, afterwards and what they think happened beforehand that would have led her there. But oh, I've I got have a some detailed timeline. Yeah, yeah. It's no, it's going to be great. I also I won't take us down this this path too much. But if you're <laughs> if you're a longtime creep time listener, um, you will know that we have an affinity now for Nancy Grace. And Nancy has commented on this case. <laughs> did you see it? No, <laughs> wait. Like, did she? She did, did a she? whole segment on Fox, and I <laughs> went to watch it. And she used a word that we didn't add to our Nancy Grace um, glossary, which was cockamamie. Cockamamie! Oh my God! I thought you were gonna say cattywampus, which is also. <laughs> I was thinking, I was like, if Nancy has not covered this yet, she is going to have a field day because it's a mother, a mother, a, mother. a daughter, <laughs> and it's in Georgia, which is where she's from. I was like, she's this is Nancy written oh, all over it. I think they pulled this. They pulled her right out of the woodworks, and they were like, get her, get her as a talking head. Like, <laughs> she comes on air, and it's like we're right back to two thousand three. She was like, this is a cockamamie story about a serial killer, like. I was Scott. I'm telling you, if you're not on the Nancy Grace wagon, <laughs> you gotta I'm, I'm get not on. Yet, but I'm about to be. 
Oh, all right. Can she be your next guest on this podcast? We're gunning for it. We're doing everything we can <laughs> to make it happen. We're going to run into her at CrimeCon, right? Yeah. Ooh. Yes. We're, yeah. I'm, We're it's manifesting not accidental. that. It's not accidental. I'm plotting all of it. All right. So <laughs> to get us back on track here, I'm going to jump into the actual timeline of how this all goes down. But actually, before I do that, let me just give you a little more backstory. And Sue, you might already know this, but I'm going to fill you in a little more, Scott. Um, just a little bit more of who Debbie was what she did, just so we have some context before Mm -hmm. we jump into what happened. So Debbie Collier, she was a 59-year-old woman, like I said, who was from Athens, Georgia, which is about, I think, an hour 45 from Atlanta. Stu, you might know better than I would because you're... Yeah. You're more familiar with Georgia, but I think that's that's how far it is. And she worked as an office manager at a real estate agency, but I also found reports saying that she was a real estate agent herself. Can you hear this cat sneezing? Oh, yes. <laughs> that was a sneeze? Yes. He's, he's really, he's like being performative right now. Whenever like he gets excited, like something's going on in the living room, <laughs> he starts like climbing up on cabinets and stuff. Anyway, so back on track there, there weren't a ton of details that I could find concerning her personal life right now because this is so recent, but we do know that she was married. Um, we know that her and her husband were sleeping in separate beds, but this wasn't According to him, this wasn't due to any marital issues. This was because of snoring, which is pretty common. And she has a daughter, who Stu, you know, Amanda Bearden, age 36. Uh, not that you know her personally, just that you've listened to the podcast. Oh, but I know her now. Yeah. I do now, yeah. Um, and although there haven't been many official details from the investigators on this case about Debbie's behavior, anything anything that could have led um, led us to believe that this would have been suicide, her daughter has now alluded to all of these strange warning signs in the days leading up to the disappearance, things that would be kind of in step with a suicide. We're talking about, like, spending a lot of money, leaving things to a lot of people, you know, sending strange Mm. messages and strange um, depressive statements that she was making, things that would suggest that she was unhappy, and that's where this was headed. That's the track it was on. But this also conflicts her initial statements to police I think on the day her mother is found where she says she has no history of mental illness and she has no suicidal tendencies. And of course things change and like you view things with a different perspective after, after the fact, but I have found that conflict very odd. Um, And the question is if this was just a very dark case of suicide, we still have unanswered questions when it comes to that, ominous and cryptic Venmo message referring to the they who won't let her go. That is the big question. Who is the they? So I'm going to shift into a full timeline, but before I do any initial thoughts just on Debbie, uh, I feel like I got a pretty good sense of who, who she might be, how she exists. Um, and maybe if she was keeping something from her family or, or, or everybody, because nobody has really come forward to say or to corroborate the idea that she had strange behavior leading up to these days outside of the daughter. Like no one at her place of work that I read. I don't think her husband said anything. Even her sister initially uh, d- didn't suspect that this was anything other than foul play. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought it was really weird because also the daughter had just moved back to Georgia from Maryland. She mm-hmm. had moved back four days before this happened. Um, and I thought it was bizarre that she would... 
make statements about her mother's like mental health having barely spent any like physical time with her at that point That's true. Mm-hmm. i feel like the husband since they were living together would have picked up on these things or people at work or and it just felt yeah. a little out of nowhere especially not to base anything off of her looks or like her vibe sort of but the photographs of her her job kind of being people facing i mm-hmm. feel like she Tough doesn't be right typically yeah. look like someone of course people go through things that we have no idea but yeah you can usually people that are close to them start to see little signs and i thought it was just kind of odd that the daughter was picking up on all of this having only been around her for like four days that after being estranged point. from her yeah i was gonna say i was like we should also preface oh, so they were like fully estranged well or... i don't know if we could say they were fully estranged um they definitely the daughter had said some yeah. attentions for sure well, what did the daughter yeah. say in the podcast? That might give clearer insight from her perspective. Yeah. Well, she was saying that in the past, so she had a history of um, substance abuse mm-hmm. and she and her mom would like go through these periods where her mom would like still keep in contact with her and her mom was never like not there for her really, but her daughter was just definitely ashamed of the fact that she was still using And her mom would, like, constantly say, like, if you're going to move back to Georgia, you have to promise me you'll be clean. Like, you have to promise me you'll do these things. Mm -hmm. Um, And But I do know that the daughter is fully estranged from the brother. Really? Well, I thought she was living with the brother on... Weren't they living in Maryland together? No. Not true. In the podcast, she says that they lived in the same apartment complex, but they literally did not speak to each other. Oh, interesting. What? So all of my research suggested that she, pri- prior to moving back to Athens, to this, I think the same duplex where she had been living before she left, they had said that she was living with the brother for an unspecified amount of time. That's interesting that they were not talking. Yeah. And even more on the podcast, she, she we can launch into that in a little bit, but she um, kept referencing that her brother and I think his girlfriend or roommate constantly told the landlords that like she was crazy and that like she had problems yeah so there was a lot of family tension has he taken any sort of public stance i i only read a few statements from the brother has he taken any stance against like talking about the sister coming forward or the state of the case i think on the podcast she said they literally did not speak at the funeral at the service wow they're definitely not on speaking terms but yeah now i want to know what his like what his relationship with the mother was like. Well, the, I was going to touch had... on that because they had some statements that he released talking about mm-hmm. like only positive things about his mother. Um, it was actually you know very very upsetting to read, but just talking about how she was the most loving person, you know, enjoying the the respect for privacy um, during this time. But he didn't allude to anything that seemed vindictive towards the sister or was accusing the sister or the boyfriend because the boyfriend is Mm -hmm. a larger component to that story than i think debbie's daughter but maybe i should jump straight into the actual event so we can figure out what happened in the days leading up to and when she was found so i've got this full timeline that's actually going to start on september 8th so this is two days i thought it was two days before she's actually reported missing because she's reported missing the morning or the evening of the 10th, I think, yeah. So Collier's daughter, Bearden, Amanda Bearden, like I said, and Stu said, she moves back to Georgia with her 27-year-old boyfriend, Andrew Gikerich. I think that's how you say that, right? 
Gingrich? Gingrich? I think so. With Newt Gingrich. I was going to say Newt, her boyfriend, Newt Gingrich. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So according to George Kaysen, the lead investigator on this case, they had been living with the brother, but clearly he got that wrong, according to Amanda's statement saying that she's estranged from the brother. But we believe this was in Maryland, right? She was in Maryland before coming back to Athens, I think. Yeah. So this couple, to color their story a little bit more, they've got a history of arrests for domestic violence, other charges, um, including some that are drug-related, like Sue alluded to, and when they moved back, they returned to that same Athens duplex where they lived before. So they're relatively close to Debbie at this point, but it had only been, literally, I think like she probably would have been there and, and had a chance to see her mom, if she did, for like a day or two. So what we know from the rough timestamp is that the last person we believe who had seen Debbie in her family was the husband who said he saw her going to bed September 9th, which was Friday night. And then by the morning, I think she was already gone. So she's left in her rental car by September 10th, that Saturday morning, uh, where she would proceed to travel 60 miles, Scott. She's going from Athens, 60 miles away for no known reason. And then by 217, this is when we we have a a little bit of a trajectory. We're like, we know where she's headed because she's spotted on traffic cameras where we see her rental car going northbound on Route 15 in Tallulah Falls. And then I think eventually she gets to that Dollar General in Clayton at 2.55. So now we're like 90 minutes, a full 90 minutes from her home in Athens. Mm -hmm. The store cameras catch her walking in and she's really easy to spot because she's got this like bleach blonde hair. She's wearing like a number 34 Georgia Bulldogs jersey. And she goes in, she purchases those strange items that were found near her remains. That included the tarp. We've got the red tote bag, paper towels, a torch lighter, and a rain poncho. A very strange collection of items. Yeah. Have you, I mean, have either of you given any thought to why those items? It sounds like, like a, like Dexter, like type of like murder site cleanup type of. Cleanup for sure. Yeah. Like like you're plotting. Yeah. I, I can't like understand it. Do you have any thoughts too? I mean, at first, before they ruled it a suicide, I was thinking, like, was she being ordered to go in and get this stuff? Like, That's what everybody thought, yeah. Yeah. They thought she, yeah, um, they thought that she was being coached, well, basically. They are. Uh-huh. Right. Well, so she makes those purchases, and she's seen leaving at 3.09 on camera. She leaves the store, gets back into a rental car in the parking lot, and that's where the strange Venmo message comes from. So... This is 3.17 p.m., I believe, where the Venmo payment goes through. Uh, I think eight minutes after she left the store, she's sitting in the car, and she sends that cryptic message. They're not going to let me go, along with that $2,385 payment. And then investigators found out this was the last place her phone pinged, which suggests that she turned off her phone, or she might have smashed her phone. Because the phone was found smashed by her body. Did you read that, Stu? No, I didn't. Yeah. Yeah, the phone was found smashed. And there's a lot of debate on, like, whether she did it. Obviously, if we're leaning into a homicide theory, whether somebody else did it. But clearly, she did not want anyone contacting her. And she did Mm -hmm. not want anyone tracking that phone. Um, So before we get into a little bit more talking about that Venmo message, I'm just... I was trying to think, like, what is the motive, I guess, around the phone? Because I... 
I'm trying to think through this in terms of like her plotting all of this herself. She smashes a phone or turns off the phone in her car immediately after sending that Venmo. Is it because she's afraid the daughter will, will then call her and say like, what's going on? I'm, I'm just trying to think through like what her, her game plan is here. Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost like if this is of her own doing a suicide that she knew that if the phone was still on, there was a chance she wouldn't follow through with it. Um, mm -hmm. And so maybe getting, oh, because I also was too, wondering yeah. why go this far away? Like most people yeah. commit suicide pretty close to home typically. Um, so I was thinking like, okay, I guess like she was working herself up to do it maybe. And the only way that she felt comfortable doing it was far away with nobody able to contact her and she felt like she could go through with it. Yeah, it's the location is very strange. I I haven't really thought about, or I haven't really come to a conclusion as to why I think she drove to this place specifically, but also like you're saying, why so far? So far. It still doesn't explain the weird combo of things that she bought. Not at all. No, not at I mean, there are a lot of theories about why she bought those things, which I can get into. Some of them are like reach theories, but... Mm. Yeah, I, I also I didn't understand any of that either. But we should also talk about since we're we're at this point in the story, the largest clue in this case that has been the topic of debate, which is the actual Venmo that was sent, the two thousand three hundred eighty-five dollars, a shockingly close amount to what we said before, either the parole fines or potentially to the unpaid balance. I think at the men's drug treatment center where the daughter's boyfriend was receiving treatment, so. The assumption was that the daughter and the boyfriend had somehow threatened her or coached her up until this point to drive all the way out there, buy the items for her own murder, and then had forced her to Venmo and sort of stage it as if, like, there was somebody else who was kidnapping her, basically. Like, they, they are not going to let me go. Mm -hmm. And then sends the money, which he needs for treatment or he needs for parole fines. And then whatever happens after 3.17, up until the following day, noon, when she's found, we don't know. So bizarre. It's like, strange. I, I just can't imagine her going through with being coached by her daughter's boyfriend, who she's had so much trouble with, like so much animosity that like she's mm -hmm. willing to just like, even, I've even thought about it in the sense of, maybe the boyfriend didn't let on that like she was going to be murdered or something like until the very last moment. And then she had to send the Venmo, like maybe her daughter and the boyfriend asked her to go get these items. And then it all started to fall apart sort of. Well, there were a lot of people were saying online that the only way that the incentive, I guess, if he did coach her, the way that she would go through with it is if he's threatening her over the phone, that he's going to do something to the daughter. So sort of posing it as if, like, I've got your daughter hostage. If you call police, she's dead. If you do anything outside of what I tell you, she's dead. And then he's coaching her. And another thing about this that I literally just found, and I don't know if, if Scott, Sue, if you've ever heard this before, but I just heard this before we came on. Police have not obtained the phone records of oh, Debbie's really? phone. They have not, and I was like, why? Like, that seems like How? St yeah. step one in an investigation. Apparently, phone record or phone companies don't provide those for free. They have entirely dedicated teams and like, like subsets of their company that specialize in like providing phone information in criminal cases, but it costs a lot of money. And if you're county police and you're strapped in a case that's already been ruled as a suicide, there's much 
there's a less of an incentive, I would say, to go forward and try to do that. Wow. Which, really? It, mm-hmm. it would be so interesting if they could get them because the daughter claims to have been calling and calling and calling. Mm-hmm. And if that's not true, that would be really interesting. Um, well, she, I think there's a, there's a public 911 call with the daughter where she does say something like that. I think she keeps saying something like, have you tracked her car? Have you tracked her phone? Like, yeah, she does keep kind of insistently saying that. But she also says, like, do I have to hire a private investigator? It seems, like, the presentation of it is that she's really trying to help solve the case. This is before her mother's even found, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. I mean, she she definitely talked about that 911 call um, mm-hmm. and starting to make it, trying to discover where her mom was early on in the day, like, after, like, she couldn't, she got the Venmo request. I, I guess Venmo um, transaction. Right. Um, but I think, and I'm sure you'll get into this, where people started to point fingers is because she like didn't make that nine one one call until pretty late in the game. Like she started, she like didn't call immediately. She was trying to find her mom on her own. Um, I think we've seen that before, though, in other cases. I'm not sure if there's a psychological thing behind that. Scott, you might have a take on this too, but like we've seen that before, where like concerned family members don't immediately call police sometimes because I feel like that makes it a little too real. That like horror yeah, is unfolding. Speaking. Yeah, it's like once once the police are involved, it's like that's when you kind of have to admit that this person is missing and it may be a yeah. like criminal or a serious case rather mm-hmm. than, oh, maybe we just can't find them. Maybe this happened or that happened. Do you both yeah, think up until that point, like at the, at the moment that they reported her missing, that they suspected, if we're assuming everyone involved in the family is innocent, that they suspected there was foul play off the bat? Because I haven't been able to decide on what's been presented, what I've listened to. Because it almost sounded like they thought she just ran off. But her sister, who called, immediately thought it was foul play. She's like, Debbie wouldn't do this. There's someone after her. Yeah, well, it's really interesting, the the idea that the sister and the daughter were starting to make the discovery at the same time. Because I think you have the sister's perspective, where she's like, she would never do anything like this. And the daughter is kind of the starting out the story the same way, like, mom would never do this. And then it gears into like mental illness territory and like something's wrong. And I think that's kind of where like the family's severed. Um, Because I think once Mm -hmm. they found out that the daughter was back in town, everything started to, it all got really messy. Um, Uh, Yeah, I haven't really given much thought to that either. Tell me what you think about that. But the very specific timing and sequence of events of like daughter comes back and immediately this incident unfolds. Just seemed yeah, very I, odd. Yeah, and if um, I, I mean, I guess if she is innocent, now we think that this was a suicide. I mean, the, the um, idea that she kind of waited, and I think part of the reason why she waited to call is because she has had trouble with the police in the past, so I'm sure yeah. she was scared. Um, but the fact that she, um that the whole family knew of this history and that she kind of had been such a pain like in the mom's side for a long time like Mm -hmm. the substance abuse I'm sure that the family was already sort of on edge with her moving back and then this happening just doesn't look good for her so I do yeah I don't think they're in a good spot I think that a lot of the family has still kind of sided or they had prior to 
the examination results being released last night with pointing the finger towards the daughter and the boyfriend. Oh, yeah. They all, like, her entire family thought that she did it. Yeah. she. Actually, I, think I think she mentions that on the podcast. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. I think that could also be why she didn't call right away if she was like, I, if something's happening, I don't want it to be pinned on me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, like, trying to trying to avoid that by not calling the police, but by delaying that police call ends up just furthering the like suspicion on her mm-hmm. part. Right. Like if you're truly innocent, in theory, you should have nothing to hide when it comes to mm-hmm. a missing parent, I would think. Right. Yeah. yeah which I'm like, also, I'm like, I, can she share her phone records to, Show the calls that she's been making. So I have some, I have some stuff on this. <laughs> um, well, maybe I should wait until we get into the theories. Let me finish. Okay. I'll finish out the rest of the sequence of events, but then we're going to talk about phone records and we're going to talk about the daughter because I've got some information that I find unsettling about phone records and her. So what happens after this event? So we know that the Venmo request gets sent, the phone gets shut off or smashed, possibly both, and then... Debbie heads southbound on Route 15, where she would either be killed or takes her own life sometime that evening or possibly the following morning, because we don't have an exact window of when she died. We just know it was sometime between 3.17 and noon of the following day. So I think it's that night, Stu, like you were saying, like everything kind of happens a little later in the day. It's when the daughter, uh, Bearden, and the husband, Debbie's husband, Steve, they make the first report to 911, I think by 6.01 p.m. that night, and the investigation is underway. Now, how did they actually find her body on September 11th? So Sirius XM Radio had contacted the Habersham County Sheriff's Office to alert the deputies of a rental car that was entered into the system. I didn't know this, but if there's a car, a registered car that's connected to a missing persons report, it immediately, I think, gets shuffled off to, like... Um, radio like radio towers like internal teams so they can try to match that up if there are any pings that come from those cars so that's how they were able to track it and the investigators do find the car after they're contacted by sirius xm radio by the the tower uh they locate it by 12 30 p.m it's parked on the northbound side of georgia route 15 in clarksville this is like 13 miles from the dollar general where she was last seen on camera and this is still like an hour outside of athens So the vehicle is described as unlocked and it's unoccupied according to the incident report. And Sue, maybe you can clarify this for me because I was confused by this, but it almost sounded like the daughter arrived at the exact same time at at the scene as the police. She did. And that's why people were very suspicious. It's like, how did she know exactly where she was going? Um, she explained this on the podcast and it's still the fact that it's not clear to me kind of means I don't think she did a great job explaining it. Yeah. There was something about um she had called the rental car company and hmm. tried to pretend to be her mother um to figure Whoa. out where the car yeah, where what? which is actually pretty smart I guess to try to figure out where she was going. Um And I can't remember if the rental car company ended up giving her a last scene, like last wherever she was or whatever, but, um, or maybe it was law enforcement, but somebody tipped her off to where the car was going to be or the direction it was heading in. And her daughter got in the car and just started driving. Holy shit. 
Yeah. How? That that is mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. And this is like a day after her mother's reported missing. Okay, so yeah. Yeah. Less than twenty four hours, really. Yeah. What we know next of the daughter arrives at basically the same time as police. And this is when the body is discovered. And in the police report, I read this like detail by detail, she pulls up, her daughter is already hysterical. Debbie's daughter is sobbing because the car is found. Uh, so that can mean quite a few things. And she claimed, this is where they, they get the first declaration. They were like, she has no history of mental illness. She has no, no suicidal tendencies. Like there's nothing to allude to that. Confusing one, because I'm assuming she hadn't been around her mother much or if anything, just mm-hmm. a day prior. So how could she really know? But also to me at the time, it seemed like she was trying to like drive home a plot point that this was murder. Like it was the they, it was some party that kidnapped her. It seemed like at the time, because she's completely shifted on that. Now she's going forward saying she was making depressive statements and she had all these like mental health issues. And the two things have friction. There's a lot of friction here in these statements. You agree? Yeah, how is her story changed so much? Over- <laughs> I mean, it could be, when you take a step back after immediate grief, maybe you have like a little reflection. Yeah. Um, I want to give her the benefit of the doubt, but it just seemed odd. And then what happened next is like after she arrives, the canine unit goes into the woods where they discover the remains of Collier's body, which is down like the ravine. It's like a quarter mile mm. from the vehicle. She's nude and partially burned with charring on her abdomen and her right hand God. clutching a tree. I, I can't imagine what that looked like or I, how that happened. Are I there know. any other details like on was, it? Like, what is that? I mean, I guess if we're ruling it a suicide, you like to a certain point, I guess, like almost asphyxiation where you're taking in like some sort of like the smoke, you're trying to mm-hmm. kill yourself by inhaling it. And maybe like she ended up burning herself a little bit in the process, but like holding on to the tree, it just the whole thing. Like, also, why get nude? Why, like, it's it's so strange. Like, there, were, it's just an odd way for anybody to commit suicide, and I, I just haven't been able to like properly envision how this played out in my mind. Yeah, and did she have any of the stuff that she bought from the dollar? She did. She did. Yeah, her? the tarp was the tarp was there. It's burned. Um, I think the tote was found as well, the torch lighter. Like, I think everything was found as well. But there was also something else found that I'm going to talk about, which, mm. okay. <laughs> I'm getting, too, I'm getting too amped up to, like, get into theories on this, so I'll plow through the rest. Um, so police say upon finding the body, they're like, it was st- extremely obvious that she was clearly deceased, which suggests that she was in a bad state. Um, there were burned remnants of the tarp, the paper towels, I don't know why the paper towels were there. Maybe to like, just had paper to like ignite a fire, the tote bag. Mm. Um, and then the body is removed and submitted to autopsy with the Georgia medical examiner. And all eyes at this point are looking towards the sister and the boyfriend. So then we get into the actual investigation and what's been released step-by-step step publicly. So we've got September 14th. This is like three days after that body was found when police issue a search warrant to actually go into the daughter's home and it's not clear if investigators have found anything there um, or what they were looking for. And she's, you know, again, she lives with the boyfriend. Um, and the couple's had this rocky relationship, numerous domestic violence calls over the past three years. So it seemed like they would be enemy number one in this case. But then this is where 
the case gets really strange for me. And Stu, you're going to, you probably felt this too when you were doing all the research and then heard about the suicide ruling. So on September 21st, this is now 10 days after the investigation is launched because the body's been found, we get this statement from police. So the Habersham uh, County Sheriff's Office reveals that the investigators have found no evidence of either suicide or kidnapping. (laughs) And detectives then serve several search warrants where they're looking to identify persons of interest. What does that mean? I mean, I understand if there's no evidence of suicide, but then what is the alternative to that? An accident? Like, I think from a little bit of the reading I've done that people think that this county's police department kind of just doesn't really? have it together. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That's and so, like. yeah. And like, because of all of the hankiness, like the, like who the heck would commit suicide like this? I mean, even I like was thinking about as I feel like a top level kind of force would come into that scene and be like what the heck like how do we begin to decipher this one it's a highly suspicious scene to like come upon Mm -hmm. that would require yeah you would tap some higher ups yep and then when you're dealing with the all eyes on this police force the daughter who is very publicly now um it's known that she's had substance abuse issues there's going to be people wanting them to just you know make us make a arrest and people like you know people want to feel like their their local police department can do a good job and i think that there's so many eyes on this case that this small little county police department is like we don't want to make any sort of statement so we're just gonna Hmm. omit everything before we like have it together and make a call but that seems like a like a statement of declaration to say we found no evidence of suicide. I mean, you'd have to be pretty sure or pretty bold, I guess, unless it truly is a case of them dropping the ball where they're like, it doesn't look like a suicide because it's so ominous and mysterious. But then the autopsy comes out and the examiner is like, no, this looks like something she did, which I don't know. I mean, we need more details on like how they were able to determine that. But yeah. Yeah. would you agree, Scott? Yeah, they, it's like, are they saying... Like, there's nothing to suggest it's a suicide, or are they saying we don't have enough information yet to declare one way or another? But the way the way that statement is phrased, it sounds like they're saying there's nothing to suggest that it was a suicide or a kidnapping, which is odd to make that declaration right away and then mm-hmm. go back on it. Well, I also, it's, the timing of this is strange too, because this is a full 10 days after the body is discovered that this statement comes out. So not only has the body of the scene been, you know, recovered and surveyed, but they've had quite a bit of time now to like review what that scene looked like, to look at photographs, to like look at evidence. Like they've had time to look at the actual structure of how everything was placed and found and figure out what does this really look like? How does this make sense right off the bat? So I just found that shocking in the context of like what got said last night that this was declared a suicide. Um, and I will get into some statistics because I was telling you, Scott, about this. I was like, there are some varying stats, um, and this can be a systemic issue dependent upon like resources by state, like whether or not medical examiners have the time or resources um, or knowledge to be 100% accurate with how they rule on autopsies. And there is a bit of a failure rate there. So 
it's not off the table. This could be one of those cases, but then we get something else here. So this is September 27th and there's another break in this case. And this is what I was talking about before. So this wasn't actually made by police. This was found by journalists who went into the woods and were like trying what? to get like pictures of the scene, like for the news stories. Right. Mm-hmm. I think this actually came out of Fox, <laughs> but they had um, journalists out there who were like taking pictures of the crime scene and they found unfired ammo that was found on the ground feet away from the marked crime scene where the body was found. So they, police were, yeah, police were contacted. Police came to the scene. They retrieved the, the ammo. And although this could have been like a highly, like a shocking coincidence, it, it doesn't seem like it. And also there was no gun or gun wound found with Debbie, mm-hmm. but there just happened to be yeah, loose ammo not- near her body. And if it was found feet from her body, how was that not found by the team investigating the? I, I don't know. Crime well, scene yeah, in the first that also place. suggests that kind of what Stu, what you're saying, I was like, it's county. It's we have a saying on this podcast: county police, baby. You can't trust county. <laughs> you can't trust county. They want to get home by five. They've got things to do. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's true. Yeah, I mean, we've also, we've talked about this even with the Dylan Parker case, where sometimes weather can also be um, a factor when it comes to county actually picking up, like, a lot of the evidence. And I think that it was pouring rain, I think, when they, like, looked through the scene. So there was more of an incentive for them to, like, get in, get out quicker, I think, than normal. If you got that mixed with people who aren't used to handling a crime scene like this, you've got a lot of things kind of working against your case. But they did find ammo. And I was trying to piece together, if that fits into the story, how? Are we talking about someone luring her out there with a gun, intimidation to like walk her through self-inflicted harm to make the whole thing appear as a suicide? It sounds like a reach theory, but I am trying to piece together, if it is suicide and that ammo came from Debbie, there would have been a gun. If there wasn't a, a gunshot wound, there would have been a gun or at least some additional evidence of where the ammo came from. She's not just walking around with like loose bullets in her pocket, you know? That's the thing. Yeah, they're not not like shells or anything. It's unfired ammo. So even if it, someone is there with her, like forcing her to do this stuff, like with a gun, how does that loose ammo get out? If it, Shaky hands right. while you're trying to load fired. a gun. Shh. Sh- Maybe. I mean, it could be a lot of things. Yeah. Or it's like you're just throwing the net wide trying to make it look like something happened and you're just like, let me throw off the scent sort of. Like, that's what Hmm. I was thinking. But Yeah. No, no, that's a good point too because there are, I haven't thought too much about like the staging of a potential like crime scene like this if they were trying to make it look like murder but then like just through the haphazard collection of evidence somehow this has been ruled as a suicide and now whoever did this was like, great you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's very very strange we do get um this is around the time where the 911 calls i think are obtained as well and this is where the family um comes forward with some conflicting statements and declarations to police as well so this is where i wanted to talk about her sister so there is a lot of heat on the daughter at this point like everyone has said the daughter and the boyfriend have got to be guilty they have to be involved in some way there are too many coincidences it's too specific for them not to be involved. But then I want to turn to the 911 call that came out of Diane Shirley. And Stu, I'm very curious to hear if the daughter has talked about this. But Diane Shirley 
um, Debbie's sister had called 911 and she made this alarming mention prior of a prior encounter um, of an unidentified ex-con who was driving a truck that was involved in a crash with Debbie, possibly as recently as like a month before she was found. Something that had to do with like Debbie was behind him and something loose like a paint can or something metal like fell off of his truck or his roof and hit her car, which I think explains the rental. And at the time, he, what the sister's saying is that he begged her not to call police or report the accident because he was on parole, this guy. He was an ex-con, and he shouldn't have been driving. And if he got caught driving, he could go back to prison. Debbie did report this accident to police and to her insurance, um, which then I think we were able to trace records of who this is tied to. Um, so the sister says on the phone, she goes there, she says it was a paint can. She goes, there was paint everywhere. The driver was trying to convince my sister not to tell the cops he was driving because of the parole. And he had a stipulation in his parole that he couldn't drive. So we think it's tied to 48-year-old Miguel Martinez, who was allegedly operating a vehicle without a license, had not secured items to the roof when they fell off and hit her car. Um, we think it's tied to this, obviously, but he has not been named as a suspect, although he does have a history of violence towards women, according to his court records. So suddenly we have dual motives here because everything up until this point had suggested it's got to be the daughter and the boyfriend. And now we have some guy who told this woman, do not report me to police. She does. And now there's an incentive for him to come after her. And now she incepted. Yeah. Oh my God. So the, yeah, there's a few degrees here. Um, Cause I've been trying to rationalize if the daughter truly is innocent and not involved, I have to figure out who the they is that she's referring to. That's, and that's what's really getting me. Like, one, there's like the scenario that she could have been like, like hearing voices, and this is like a like mental instability yeah. issue, and that is the they. But for like, if she was murdered, and there is a culprit, one they so it's got to be i'd assume multiple, multiple people, people yeah totally unless it's a non-binary killer stop um, <laughs> please <laughs> um, i'm waiting for the, uh, a, nine, a non-binary uh, serial killer day. <laughs> nancy grace yeah. will have a heyday with the, the first day. non-binary <laughs> serial killer well, we got to come up with a name for them uh the n the nb bludgeon or something yeah we'll something it out. incredible we'll workshop <laughs> But so like one, like the they makes me think if there is a killer, it's multiple people. And two, like like for the most part, if I'm gonna refer to like Silas, if I'm talking to you and I'm gonna refer to someone by a pronoun, that's because I assume you know who I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Like if if I call someone they it's assumed that you know who they refers to. Exactly. Which, yeah. I'm like, so would not the daughter, I, I would assume that the daughter would know who this they referred to. I'm, pre I'm pretty much tracking with all of that, but this is, this is also under the assumption that Debbie wrote that message on her own doing, that she wasn't coached through mm -hmm. that. It's also under the assumption True, that there yeah. weren't words missing from that message because now I'm going to jump into some of the theories that are, that are out oh. right now because, of course, as we know, as of last night, we have the examiner who came forward suggesting that they had there was no additional evidence inside or outside the body 
to suggest that this was anything other than her own doing. This is including like the charred abdomen, um, the hydrocodone uh, overdose, like all of that they're saying was Debbie alone, which seems shocking to me. But I did just want to share a little bit of research to caveat, to caveat that um, on autopsy accuracy. So this is a public study out of the National Library of Medicine because I'm coming with credentials here. <laughs> <laughs> Receipts, yes. Dorlin. Um, well, I was just curious about it because I was like, is that highly, un- I mean, how improbable is it to think that an autopsy could be off? Because we've seen this with cases before where people do medical examinations and for a multitude of reasons, the cause of death cannot be determined because it, there are too many details that just make it inconclusive as a whole. So in relation to the determination of principles, uh, principal diagnoses, diagnoses um, relating to the cause of death uh, in technically adequate autopsy, diagnostic uncertainty persists in 1% to 5% of all cases, although rates of up to 40% inaccuracy have been reported depending upon the type of autopsy, the cases, locations, um, and the resources when and where they are performed. There are systemic issues with the medical examination system as a whole in a state-by-state case. So, of course, we, we want to assume that a case as high profile as this has seen a thorough autopsy with a highly credentialed person. I do not know who did her autopsy. But there is always a window and a possibility of misjudging something, especially if it was done to her with the intention to make it look like this was of her own doing take a bottle of pills. I order you to take a bottle of pills. Light yourself on fire or I'll shoot you. You know, like any number of things that could have convinced this woman. I've just had a hard time I've had a hard time understanding and rationalizing the irrational of how she did this to herself. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm thinking about the resources statement that you just made and I would be interested if the autopsy was performed in Athens where I think there's ample resources or mm-hmm. if it was in this really rural area of Georgia. Um, and no no hate on Georgia. I'm from Georgia. But, like, I know that that area, like, Athens is, like, you're already getting, you know, further into rural areas and then, like, mm-hmm. 60 miles away from there. I mean, I'm sure that there are resources in that um, medical examination office are totally. not, like, top tier. And this, yeah. this, to me, is a really, this would be a really hard body and case to like figure out and make a ruling um, as a coroner. Like I, I just can't imagine like it just seems really Sorry, I was, I was just thinking of you as together. a coroner. Like you spoke as if Dreams. you had been a practicing coroner for like 20 years. You're like, for me personally, in my practice, this for would me, be extraordinarily in my practice, difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I, Literally, wait, that's so funny. I'm going off of the only coroner experience I have is playing this what? video game called L.A. Noir. We have to like to sponsored, <laughs> and we'd like to thank our sponsors that... this evening. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Anyways, um, L.A. Noir is it an autopsy type video game where you're the you're no, a coroner it, in this game? It's a mystery. Like it's an amazing oh, video gotcha, game. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. But okay. it's like you're like 1940s detective, and you're trying to like figure out like the Black Dahlia case. Like it's it's super famous game. It's like based off of. You're gonna get me into um, gaming, and I'm gonna quickly switch over to becoming a Twitch streamer. <laughs> Very. Quickly. I know. I think you'd make bank. Do it. <laughs> 
Yeah, if I can just wear the, I, I can wear a low cut shirt and I can show off these boobies. It's over, yeah. girls. It's over. <laughs> Excuse me. It's a wrap. Well, just, <laughs> take a page out of Scott's book and just come on the podcast. Or go on Twitch fully nude. Yeah. I mean, it's what you should do. I'm doing it. We're all, we're all doing it. Everyone's got a motive. Who needs only fans when you've got the creep time? <laughs> when you've got Twitch. <laughs> when you've got the creep time podcast. Who needs an OnlyFans? <laughs> oh. Well, okay. I to shift us back into the dismal despair of this case. Uh, yes. I I did want to I want to get your thoughts, both of you, on the final Venmo message because tell me what you think of this theory. So I'm I'm like up late last night to the wee hours, two, three in the morning, as one is when they're living my life, uh, and I'm <laughs> researching all of the theories that everyone's tossing out because people are going in on this case, as you can imagine. And one of the most popular ones is that everybody has misread the final Venmo message and that was actually intended as some kind of a suicide note, but she had missed a a word or two. So the operative word being the word in. So what Debbie says when she goes, they won't let me go, she missed saying they won't let me go in, which people are saying alludes to the drug treatment center, which I couldn't find which one it was, and I couldn't find if it was located in this part of the state where she was, or maybe she had tried to do this back in Athens, who knows, but she said they won't let me go in because it's a men's-only drug treatment center, and they don't allow women in, which I find odd. But she had intended to go in in her final, like, days and her suicidal tendencies to give away her money and to pay off the outstanding balance for her daughter's boyfriend's treatment. So I think that would make sense in terms of like, I'm sending you this money because they won't let me go in to pay off his treatment. I love you. There is a key in the blue pot to the house. That tracks for me a lot. I'm like, wow, that is a one, one word. One little word can just completely change the entire meaning of what that final Venmo transaction was. Although there is, there's still a sinister feeling, an odd feeling to like what happens after that and why she went about the suicide in this way. Would the idea have been that she was driving to go to the facility to pay off the debt? I think, like, yeah. Like at the beginning? I think that she, the idea is that she had a few things she wanted to accomplish. She wanted to give away as much of the money that, as she could as possible and what she planned to be her last day. So she tries to go to the center because there's a good number of hours where she's not seen on camera. We don't know exactly where she went in that car after we saw her going northbound. But she, yeah, she tries to go to the center. They're like, sorry, ma'am, you can't come in. But this is a men's only facility. And she goes, I'm trying to pay a balance. They say, we're sorry. Like, we can't make an exception. So she leaves and then goes to take care of the other part of the day, which is to buy the items, plot the suicide, send the rest of the money to the daughter, and then she goes. I think, I think that's the thinking. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I could see it, but at the beginning of the podcast, when I was saying, like, I have a theory, I was going to, I fully had the same thought you had, Scott, that maybe they could have been like demons, you know, like things Mm -hmm. that she's Mm -hmm. battling. But wow, how interesting to think about, like, they won't let me go in. But she just totally forgot the word. Yeah, I mean, well, a lot of people have said you could be, she could have been in a heightened state of just like, Mm-hmm. shaky, nervous, a little bit distracted. I mean, there, there's a lot that I'm sure would go through your mind if you're anticipating harming yourself, you know, doing something mm-hmm. to yourself. Yes, yeah. So, but also, I mean, an older woman, I mean, it's it's not out of the realm of possibility for someone mm-hmm. who's a boomer to miss a few words in a text or a message, right? Sure. Yeah. yeah. So I do want to see the security footage from the 
facility now, though. Well, there is none from the facility. We we actually we have no oh. confirmation of this. This is just a theory. We I don't even know. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I don't even know which facility they're referring to. We just have word. I think it either came from Amanda or somebody who made a statement saying that the boyfriend was in like a treatment facility that was men only, and mm-hmm. that's that could have explained the missing word. But even so, it still seems like a strange final message to send to your daughter. But maybe not if you're estranged. I don't know. You know what else I thought about if. This was her final moment and she was, and I guess maybe like if you're at gunpoint or something, someone's holding you at gunpoint telling you to write this, like, I feel like I would have just like exited out of Venmo and tried to call 911 as fast as I could, you know, like Mm -hmm. there's kind of the whole Venmo thing, as much as it feels like such a mystery, it's starting to feel more like a suicide note to me. The more mm-hmm. we're talking about it and the more I think about it, um, I don't know. I, I I kind of sit with you on this one because the Venmo message to me would be a huge red flag. First of all, anybody who sends you like two grand out of the blue, that's not an everyday occurrence. That's a red flag that something's going on, you know? Mm-hmm. Um So it is shocking to me that there is this gap of time, three hours, where I find it difficult to believe her daughter wasn't on her phone, did not see that message, and did not become concerned. But you're saying she was concerned prior. She was just looking for her mother in the meantime. She hadn't called police. Yeah, like she, she, I believe, claims to have gotten that request, thought it was strange, and started calling her mom and trying to figure out, like, where she Mm. was. Scott, what do you think? That makes sense to me. I mean, it does, to me, that Venmo does read as a, as a suicide note. It does, as, yeah. a, as a last goodbye. Yeah. yeah. I, I buy that more than being coerced into, into having written it. I could buy that for sure. I, I also wanted to talk about some other mysteries here that have to do with the smashed phone that was found by her body, because that was evidence collected. Um, if we're going on this, this theory and, you know, siding with the suicide uh, declaration, that she smashed the phone herself as a way to avoid being tracked after she sends that Venmo. Um, but there are some odd details about the phone that I want to talk about. So in the original 911 call that I think her daughter made, she immediately asks if she can track if they can track her mom's phone because she has the iCloud login information. I have found that very strange, um, and I did some digging on this last night just to look at like what are the logistics of like if you have someone's iCloud information or like their Apple ID and whatnot, what can you actually delete off their phone and what can you manipulate off their phone um, from afar? And like I said, as of even now, they don't have her phone records. They never paid to get them. The county never paid to retrieve those from the phone company. So the daughter has the iCloud information, which to me suggests that she has some kind of access to remove things from the phone if she wanted to, um, delete things if she wanted to, or even remotely erase the entire phone. That is a feature on Apple. So I found that strange. Um, But also what she can do is use Find My iPhone. Good point, yeah. Locate. That's a good point that I didn't think about either. You you technically could, unless it's truly... I mean, Find My iPhone will not work if the phone is completely shattered and broken. So maybe mm-hmm. she had already exercised that, but it would seem like no if she's calling 911 and saying, can you track her phone? It almost seems like she's confirming, like, 
can you track her phone? Hmm. Can you do these things? Hmm. It seemed like she, it alluded to me that she knew something, but I, I don't know for sure. Um, and I want to talk more about the angle of Debbie doing this to herself, because there is a lot of confusion um, on some of the things that were found and the way she was found. And this is not official, but the information that I'm seeing discussed online is suggesting that the poncho that she bought was, I think the poncho or the tarp were either lit on fire or she lit herself on fire and tried to use, or she lit a fire and tried to use the tarp as a way to kill herself in the woods through smoke inhalation. Because we know that was a part of how oh, she died God. because there was soot found in her nostrils. Ugh. It's a very, very strange way to me to try to kill yourself. Yeah, I mean, I know we said this earlier, but to go so far away and to choose such an odd way to kill yourself, like, mm -hmm. it just, something doesn't feel totally right. And maybe it was just, I don't know, it would be really interesting if they could look up, like, any history she had, like her search history of like ways to commit, like I just, That's what I'm saying. I kind of yeah. can't fathom how you came up with this. Like if That's you hadn't true. read yeah. it in a book or seen it online or watched it in a movie, like it's so weird. It's extremely specific. I, I would be very interested to see. I mean, phone records really are like a huge window into the mind and like someone's final moments of thought. So I can't believe in all of the, the resources they spent, they spent on this case, they wouldn't obtain those first. But uh, there's also a theory, I guess, that she didn't light a fire, but maybe she lit the tarp on fire and then accidentally caught herself on fire. So she panics and tries to like pull off her clothes, which explains why she was found nude. Mm -hmm. And then in the process of that, falls down the hill into the embankment, like this ravine. And she's sort of rapidly, you know, still pulling the clothes off, trying to put out this fire. She's burning, she has char found on her body. And she grabs the tree while trying to get up the ravine or in the process of falling down the hill and just died in the process from the combination of the opioids that she took, the burn wounds, but also the smoke inhalation that she had already suffered. All of that combined just, just killed her. Um, it's, it's a lot for me to envision that. I mean, I know that we've, we've exercised envisioning some pretty impossible deaths with Julia Davis, <laughs> But um, I don't know. I, I, I think it's, it's just people reaching anywhere they can to try to explain why she was found like this. It doesn't make... I can't imagine anybody burning themselves. Your mind would intervene. Mm -hmm. It would. It's like trying to drown yourself in, in something, in like a foot of water. Your mind just takes over and pulls you out. Yeah. And jerk reactions that stop you from doing those things. Can she we... saw that Tibetan monk and was inspired. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, that's... But, see, that would be at least a window. Like, even if it was that, as I know you're, like, making a joke, but, like, something to give her some inspiration to do it this way would be at least, like, something to go off of. I think totally. that, like, the fact that it's so specific... And then we haven't even touched on the hydrocodone in her system. Like, oh yeah, what? Where? How does she have a prescription for that much hydrocodone? Um, or I guess how much was actually in her body? And then the other just crazy layer to this is that she had such an intense, uh, you know, dis disdain for her daughter being a drug abuser that it would be really bizarre for her to also be using painkillers herself and like. It's yeah. just something is so off. 
Well, that pushes the other theory even crazier, where people online are suggesting that she went out there with the intention to smoke meth. And I was like, what? And then they're saying, they're like, there's there's evidence that she was suffering from like a drug habit behind the scenes and a lot of this, this part of Athens. But I'm like, I can't, I mean, maybe this is my own like one track mind, but I'm like, I just can't see it. Like they were like, no, they're like all the stuff she had, like. Because I think people are clinging to the torch lighter. The torch lighter was really specific, but also when police initially found the body, they made a statement, which they haven't touched on since then, where they said her body was found. We believe it might be drug related. So that could have been one in one case where they're saying they found drug paraphernalia, or it could have been that like, it's possible that she OD'd like on pills or something. But saying drug related is what everyone was like. She went out there to smoke meth. And I'm like, I, I don't know. Well, other crazy layer, that's what her daughter was doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's why people so tied it. They were like, they, they tied yeah. it to that. I don't know. <sighs> I don't know. I'm, I'm not buying that one. Uh, I mean, I also don't know for sure. I don't know any of us. But that, that seems like it's a bit of a stretch. Mm-hmm. Well, on the topic of drug-related, I guess I would... I would shift over to the theory that I was telling you about, Stu, where I think I thought that what this was was that this was Debbie potentially committing suicide but trying to stage it herself as a murder. Why would she do that? So a lot of times if you have life insurance policies, it will be voided if your death is found to be a suicide, right? Um, There's like a clause that you always sign. Usually that might be a myth and it may not Mm -hmm. be the same thing across all life insurance policies, but for many of them it is. If you've watched Ozark, you know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So people were saying that she had a life insurance policy. She intended to kill herself. And the way she would do it is she would take the bottle of um, the opioids. But then she would send that cryptic Venmo message, just try to set um, set up the scene as if she had been kidnapped and would be murdered. And then after she takes the pills in the woods, she lights herself on fire as a way to destroy herself as evidence so they can't tell one way or the other if she killed herself or if it was a murder, which is, is of course a flawed plan because we have forensics, we have autopsies and like there are things we can see to determine that all of that would have completely tracked for me. It's really far fetched, but I'm like, that's a really convoluted and sick scenario. However, she has no life insurance policy. So the whole theory goes out the window. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When you texted me that I, I was like, Oh my gosh. I totally think the same thing. However, mm-hmm. I remember her daughter saying on the podcast that there was no life insurance policy that she was aware of. But maybe there is. But I mean, the well, daughter yeah, said true. she didn't think there was one. We'll um, take what the daughter says with a grain of salt. But yeah, I'm going to yeah. trust her on that um, one. I'll trust her because I feel like that would have broken. That would have come yeah. out. Yeah, yeah probably. If there was, yeah. But that's pretty much all I think that we have. I, I mean, a lot of that aligned for me, but... The big question for all of it, I think, in any scenario here is the why, you know, because no one at work, no one in Debbie's life had alluded to any issues where they thought that this would this would be a likely scenario for her. I just I, I don't know. I, I think the way the case presents is shocking for a lot of people because people can't rationalize the demon she might have been dealing with if this was just a, a cut and dry suicide. But it is without a doubt the the strangest suicide that I think I've ever heard of in a very normal, like suburban case like this. I mean, I think the other thing I really hate to go off of 
the visuals that we have of her mm-hmm. as a baseline. But she just doesn't look like someone that would do it in this way. Like, she looks very, like, your typical kind of, like, southern, like, yeah. I don't know. She's got the really, uh, you know, quaffed hair and the heavy, you know, kind of eye makeup. It looks very, like, yeah. peppy in all of her pictures and, like... It just seems, and I really shouldn't stereotype and say that it's not possible. Anything is possible, as we've learned on this podcast. But it just is so, like, I don't get that feeling that it makes sense. I agree. The pieces just don't come together, like, at all. And It's like a different person. She seems like a different person. It's like a different person. Yeah. Totally. And even though the daughter on the podcast... I had many a feeling about her listening to it. I know you did. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Uh, She says over and over again, like, my mom was such a, like, happy person, like a very bubbly person, everybody that knew her. Mm -hmm. And then I don't think I even got to tell you this, but she's the reason why she went on this podcast is because it's a um, true crime podcast that her, like, cousin has. Oh. Oh. So the host is related to her. Oh. And so, yeah. And so, like, I think that's why she felt comfortable enough to go on the podcast. But the cousin who's hosting it, who sounds like very, um, just her her state of mind was a lot calmer on the podcast. Like, that's what I'll say. Mm -hmm. Um, She talked about Debbie and she was like, Debbie was so sweet. Like, growing up, like, I just have such a memory of her, like, making us food, like, Comfort Southern food was super warm. Like, so it just, as I listened and was trying to like get more of a feeling from her daughter about her mother's personality and then the other family member, it just seems like she was known as being a very, very sweet, kind Southern, like peppy kind of person. Yeah. Um, Everything everything I've read has suggested that too. Yeah. But I mean, those people can be the best ones at hiding what they're going through. Exactly. True. Yeah. They're, overcompensating for their dark thoughts with extra peppiness and Mm -hmm. generosity. Yeah. I don't know. It's a very, very sinister story. Yeah. Um, And then uh, just the feeling I got from the podcast, there was a lot of uh, resentment on the daughter's part towards her family. I mean, she was, her tone was... If I were her lawyer, I would be like, that was not a great performance. Does she have an attorney? I don't know if she has an attorney, but after listening to her, I really wish and I hope that she has one because if she is innocent and, you know, now we're saying that this is a suicide, she was not making herself sound like she really cared. Like, Mm -hmm. like she just sounded so... um, and maybe there's a lot of resentment there. Maybe their family ties totally. are really strained. Mm-hmm. But to go on a nationally like syndicated podcast and be like, you know, but she literally calls out her aunt or something directly. She's like, so and so, you're a horrible person. And I and she sounds like she cries and then she like starts laughing. And then she'll like cry and start laughing. Like it just you have yeah. a really uneasy feeling listening to her talk about it. Like it feels very Flippant. I, de- I I'll say. definitely agree that it probably wasn't a good idea. I don't think it's a good idea for anyone who's going through grief, if, if she is, to go 
on a podcast or do a public interview, even though I know everybody looks to those things. So I have to look at it through that lens. I'm like, she could be going through her own version of like a psychosis from experiencing all this. And maybe that's why yeah. she's acting like that. But I, I totally hear what you're saying. Like for the optics of it are really bad. She, she yeah. looks very nonchalant, which is concerning if she's the number one suspect in what was potentially a homicide, but now it, it looks like not. Yeah. And I'll give her, I'll definitely give her this, that she is open, that she suffers from bipolar disorder on mm-hmm. the podcast. So, I mean, certainly something like this is going to throw a huge wrench in being able to cope um, when you already are going through something like that um, or you suffer with that already. So I was trying to keep that in mind as I was listening to her. Like when I would hear kind of that flip flop, like the manicness that she's probably experiencing a lot um, Mm -hmm. in that moment. And yeah, but I just think, and it's sad that she doesn't have a strong family unit right now, because um, if she did, I think people would have kind of said like, let's take care of you. Let's make sure you're good before yeah. going on. It might just a be a, rea- it's a reactionary thing. Like she's, yeah. she's in defense yeah. mode because there's no one on her side. And especially mm-hmm. if she is like, if she is like fully like innocent, she's also like she said, she's like trying to sober up now and mm-hmm. to be going through this traumatic event. And now you're like your main crutch your habit isn't there and like actively trying not to like turn to that i could imagine the mm-hmm. withdrawal is even even worse at that point that's yeah. a really good point Explain that erratic activity absolutely before we close out the case of debbie any final thoughts on the story i think we'll probably pick up on this again because i have a feeling there might be even more developments that come out in the days to weeks after this but mm-hmm. any last thoughts on this very, very sinister case. I This was a suggestion, I think, from a few creepers on TikTok, so I wanted to cover it as it was breaking, but <laughs> damn, they put us through the ringer again. <laughs> like I know. <laughs> we love you guys, know. but <laughs> you, yeah, we you love really, you like, twist I, us out. Like. <laughs> I just hope that, that she is, if, if this definitely was a suicide, that she's at peace and mm-hmm. that, you know, her daughter doesn't, like, it sounded like her daughter was starting to be on the up and up. She was really making a change in her life. And I hate to think that this would throw her off course. So I guess just being hopeful that that um, that their, that her mother's death doesn't divide their family any further, that it brings them together and, mm-hmm. I don't know, just Agreed. be there for each other. Right. Any thoughts, Scott, on on your first major deep dive into true crime hell? (laughs) I know that was a lot. You were a trooper through most of it. (laughs) I I don't know how you, I don't know how you guys do this every week. I was like, have you heard of Prozac? (laughs) Terrifying. I was like, and ladies and gentlemen, we would like to thank our evening sponsor, Prozac. (laughs) (laughs) Our other sponsor is Venmo. Um, The quickest and easiest way to... Send and receive money and cryptic messages. And with that, I will thank you guys for listening to Creep Time, the podcast. Um, Tune in next week for another episode. We love you guys. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you both for having me. Of course. Thank you you so much to Scott. (laughs) (laughs)